let's pray and then we'll get into Hebrews chapter 2. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. Uh, We thank you for Dan and Kim and we pray for your continued strength in their lives. Pray for healing, for wisdom for the doctors, that they could really have clarity of of what is taking place. It's been a a long road, so would you nourish them and encourage them. We thank you for the awesome trip to Uganda and pray you would strengthen the team as they come home. And Jesus, we're in awe of you. We thank you that you're our faithful and merciful high priest. We don't know where we would be without you. You're the one who satisfies our soul. You're so gracious to provide for us. We look at the majesty of Pikes Peak and know it's just a little teaser of what heaven's going to be like. Would you encourage us and give us greater understanding of who you are? In Jesus' name, amen. Faithful and merciful. The two oftentimes don't go together. Think about it. If you find someone who's extremely faithful in their life, they're usually not very merciful because they keep the rules. They work hard. They're faithful in the little things. And so when someone doesn't fit into that, it's hard to give mercy. But then on the other hand, if you find someone that has the gift of mercy, they're so merciful, a lot of times they're just not very faithful. You can't count on them. They're not good at keeping schedules. They're not good at following through. But with Christ, we see this perfect balance of faithfulness and mercy. That he is 100% faithful, but yet he's also merciful. If we were to fast forward to the end of the chapter, we're told that our faithful and merciful high priest is ready to give us aid. He's ready to give us help if we're willing to come and receive it. The book of Hebrews is all about making much of Jesus. Jesus had the supremacy of our lives, seeing his wonder. This church, this group of believers are Jews that were saved and their tendency was to want to make less of Jesus and go back to the law, to get their eyes off of the gospel and start to trust in their own works. And so the author of Hebrews is encouraging and reminding of the greatness of Christ. This chapter begins with one of the five warnings. There's five warnings in the book of Hebrews and this is the first one. When we get to these warnings, we want to stop and pay attention. What is a yellow light? Speed up, right? (laughs) Uh, No, it's a warning. It's saying the light's about ready to turn red, so be prepared to stop. We don't really give a lot of heed to to warnings. How seriously do you take the gas light in your car? Ah, I got so much more time. I got 20 more miles, 40, 40 more miles. No, no big deal, you know. How seriously do you take it if you get a physical and your doctor says, you know, here's, here's a few problems. Here's some things that are good. Here's some things that are okay. Here's some things if you don't change, it's really going to catch up with you in five or ten years. Well, I guess I got five or ten years, right? So it's easy for us to not pay attention to, to warning. But if we're wise... We'll take advantage of a warning. We'll really stop and listen because it's saving us from destruction. And this is saving us from spiritual destruction. It says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed. So therefore, in light of who Jesus is from chapter 1, in light of the fact that Jesus is greater than the angels, that he's the express image of the Father, based on who Jesus is, therefore, We must give the more earnest heed. First in this warning, we're called to attention. Give more 
earnest heed. Pay attention to these things. And attention is powerful, isn't it? When something has gravitated our attention, it's attracted us, we're giving our focus, then our heart is engaged. And so in essence here, it's a call to our hearts. It's a call to our focus. It's a call to our attention. It says, give more earnest heed. Make sure that you're paying attention to this, to the things we have heard. So you have attention, but you also have retention. Retain the things that you have heard. Now, there's something fascinating about new information, learning new things. It's sexy, if you would, but there's nothing sexy about old information. What do we do with the things that we've heard? We say, oh, I've heard that before. That's familiar. I've got this down. I've been around this track before, and we tend to check out. And so here we're called to give attention to the things that we've already heard, that you've learned before. He's writing not necessarily to new believers, but mature believers who are struggling and drifting away from Christ. Have you ever experienced that in your relationship with God where you go, you know what? I know the Lord. I've walked with the Lord, but I sense that I'm drifting. Or you've seen it in someone that you love and you, and you care about, this deep person of God, but yet you can tell they're not attracted to Christ any longer. They're not walking with Christ in the way that they would. And, and here it's saying, pay attention to the things that you have heard. Give more earnest heed to the things that you've already heard. Make sure they're impacting your life. Making sure that we're applying those things that we have heard. You know that spiritual hearing was really important to Jesus. In his teachings, he often said, he who has an ear, let him hear. Saying, I I know that you're all hearing physically, but a lot of you are not listening, you know? And many times in our human relationships, and especially our relationship with God, we're not very good listeners, aren't we? We're not retaining what is being communicated to us. Christ wrote seven letters to seven churches, and each letter he says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. What kind of a listener am I? What kind of a, of a listener am I to the things that I've already been taught, that I already know? So there's attention and there's also retention. What's a block to spiritual hearing? Could be familiarity. I've heard this before. It could be, I've got this figured out. That would be pride, wouldn't it? Could be, I'm too busy. I'm just too busy to listen. I think that gets us a lot of times we have a crowded and busy heart. Sometimes doubt. I'm not sure if this is true, so we stop listening. Sometimes it's selfishness. I just want it my way. You know, I can, I can order the burger the way that I want it. I can go to Chipotle and get the burrito the way that I want it. My phone's named after me, iPhone. So why, why would I listen, you know? I just, I just want it my way. And selfishness comes in and it keeps us from listening goes on and says, lest we drift away. So there's attention that we're called to, retention, but there's protection. There's protection. As we learn about the greatness of Jesus in the book of Hebrews, wouldn't we want to be close to him? If he's this supreme, wouldn't we want him to have our hearts, to have our lives? So this is the natural course of things if we don't put some effort in as we will drift away. It's what happens in relationships with husbands and wives. 
you'll drift, won't you? What's going to happen in our relationship with the Lord if he doesn't have our ear, if he doesn't have our heart, if we're not paying attention? We're going to simply drift. I want to suggest to you a thought tonight that drifting is much more dangerous than departing. Departing from God is easier to catch. It's a very deliberate, willful choice. But drifting is very, very slow and very casual to where if you're not paying attention, it's just this slow cooling. And you don't even realize, man, I've drifted from Jesus. I grew up about an hour and a half from the Pacific Ocean, was born and raised in the Southern Oregon, Grants Pass, Oregon, and Metford, and it was a quick drive over to the ocean. And I've always loved the ocean, and especially swimming in the ocean. There's just something about getting out there in the current, risking it a little bit, having some waves crash on you. And as a young kid, did a lot of swimming in the ocean, which now I go, there's no way I'm swimming in the coast of Oregon. It's freezing cold, right? But as a kid, I'd often do it. And we were taught to swim at a young age. And my dad taught us how the ocean worked and what to do if you get caught in a tide and all those things. But oftentimes, when my brother and I would be out swimming in the ocean, you'd see where kind of we were set up as a family. Usually, you'd have a, a blanket and your stuff and all of this. And that's where you'd head out into the water. And you're having fun out in the water and swimming and playing in the waves. And you're out there. And before you know it, you've drifted pretty far from where you've started. But it's so gradual, you don't even realize it. And you swim back to shore and you're like, my goodness. You know, we're, how did we get here? This is such a long ways from where we started. And that's what will happen to us spiritually if God doesn't have, have our ear. And it could have happened already. As we're reading this tonight, the Holy Spirit may be speaking to us and saying, you have drifted away. Christ doesn't have your attention. And thankfully, Christ is always willing to take us back. He's always willing to welcome us back into that close relationship with him. So this is the warning that we're, we're given in verse 1. In verse 2, For if the word spoken through angels provided steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. So the idea, the logic here, is if angels delivered the word of God and people were held accountable to that, how much more so for us who God has given us his son? In verse three, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So we've been given salvation. This church has been granted salvation in a relationship with Jesus. And the idea here is, well, if you neglect salvation, then you're gonna be held accountable for that. So the key question is, well, what does it mean to neglect salvation? It's to not abide in it, to not use it. You think if you neglect a gallon of milk in the refrigerator, in essence, what have you done? You haven't used it. If you've got a fishing rod that you neglect, you probably haven't gone fishing in a really long time. If you've got a hunting rifle in the closet that sat there for 10 years, you haven't gone hunting. You've neglected it, you know? You haven't used it. And so this isn't a works-based exhortation here. It's actually the exact opposite in saying, don't depart from the gospel. Don't depart from salvation. Don't stop believing and applying God's grace in your life. And that's what the church, 
this Hebrew church was in danger of doing. They were in danger of setting aside salvation, setting aside the grace of God, and saying, now I can relate to God through my works. Now I can relate to God through the Old Testament law. I think a lot of us would say, oh, I'm beyond that. But how many times is our relationship with God works-based instead of grace-driven? We're really saying, well, I'm expecting God to bless my life because I read my Bible, because I'm making better decisions, because fill in the blank, instead of going, I expect God to be in relationship with me based upon who he is, based upon his work of salvation. Don't neglect salvation. Don't set aside salvation. I think this is really important for us to hear. It's very important that we have a day in our life where we trusted Christ for salvation, but also hopefully tonight on April 5th, 2017, you're trusting Christ for salvation. Amen? We're continuing to abide in salvation. We're not neglecting salvation. We're not trusting in our our own selves. Continuing on in verse 3, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. So speaking of Jesus in his earthly ministry, that he spoke salvation. When Christ was 12 years old, in Luke chapter 2, he's found in the temple. He was stayed at the temple while his family left, and Mary and Joseph come to find Jesus in the temple, and this is what Christ said. He said, why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? He gave his mission statement at 12 years old. I'm about my father's business. Well, what was the father's business? What's God's economy? It's to save sinners. So God sent the son to save us from our sins. And Jesus spoke these things. Jesus came to provide salvation, but also he preached salvation. That's pretty powerful. So here he was preaching salvation, but then he would provide salvation. In John 3, verse 17, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through through him might be saved. And was confirmed by those who heard him. So Jesus came to provide salvation, and then salvation was confirmed by those who received the message, being the disciples and the apostles. And it continues to be confirmed by those who receive it by faith. In verse 4, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. So salvation is confirmed by those who believe, and salvation is also confirmed by signs and wonders and various miracles. We see that in the book of Acts. God shows the power of salvation through the signs of of a person's life being touched in a supernatural way. And it says, according to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are alive and well today. And it's in confirmation of salvation. It's in confirmation of the gospel. The gifts of the Spirit listed in Romans chapter 12, also 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Things like prophecy and teaching and helps and administration, the gift of mercy and the gift of healing all part of the gifts of the Holy Spirit to confirm salvation. In verse 5, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. Now the author of Hebrews is showing us the greatness of Christ, showing us the wonders of salvation, by showing us God's plan for mankind 
specifically leading up to Jesus Christ. And this is all in this discussion of where do angels fit in? Where does Jesus fit in? Where does mankind fit in? And never to the angels did he put the world underneath their care or subjection. But what did God do with Adam and Eve? He gave them dominion over creation. In verse 6, But one testifies in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you take care of him? So even though God gave Adam and Eve care over creation, it's an amazing thing that God would be mindful of us and that he would take care of us. This is a quote from Psalms 8. Today I just found my heart overwhelmed by God's care for me. God's care for our family. You know, have you ever had just those moments where you got, God, you're so good to us. You're so faithful. Thank you for providing for us. Thank you for meeting our needs. Thanks for allowing us to live in such a beautiful place. And God, throughout his word, lets us know that he thinks of us. And you're going, oh, great. I don't know if that's a comforting thought. Okay, you're thinking about me, but what are your thoughts towards me? That of peace and, and not of evil. And to stop and think of the creator of the universe that he thinks about you, that he thinks about me, that he thinks about all of humanity, that he takes care of us. You have made him a little lower than the angels. So we're lower in the angels. We don't have the power that angels do. We don't have the the majesty that angels do. And you've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. How are we crowned with glory and honor? Of all of God's creation, it's only said of us that we're made in God's image. So God has given mankind his glory and his honor, and then God has set us over the works of his hands. He set us over creation. You're not going to hear this outside of God's word. What culture is telling you is creation rules over us. The sun rules over us. The trees rule over us. The salmon rule over us. But God gave dominion over creation to Adam and Eve, we're to be stewards, we're to care for God's creation. And set him over the works of your hands. In verse 8, and you put all things in subjection under his feet, put things under humanity, under mankind. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not see all things put under him, but we see Jesus. See if you can follow this. I think this is really important because the father put everything under Adam and Eve, but Adam and Eve sinned, right? Jesus became man, died upon the cross, and rose again, all God and all man. It's not that he was 50% God and 50% man. He's 100% God and 100% man. And this fulfillment that all things would be put under man's feet is fulfilled in Jesus Christ becoming a man. Does that make sense? So it wasn't fulfilled in us. It wasn't fulfilled in Adam and Eve. We've done a terrible job at this, but it's perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we don't see things in this fulfilled context because we still live in this fallen world. We don't see things operating in the the perfect perspective. And that's what verse 8 is telling us. But then in verse 9, but we see Jesus. So we don't see the fulfillment of mankind ruling in the way that they should and all things being put underneath our feet, but we do see Jesus. And that's so important. And that's what I hope that you see through this study of Hebrews, that you see Christ in a greater way, 
that Christ is revealed to you? You know, is that the, the longing of your heart tonight? You know, there's a lot of frustrating things that are taking place in the world. I, I don't know if you happen to see the news today, but the reports are that Assad used chemical weapons for the second time on the people of Assyria, women and children included. And then when they sent in the medical personnel, they did a second bombing with chemical weapons. And your heart just breaks. 